Guys, if you're anything like me, looking at maps has always been a huge part of my preparation and execution for my outdoor adventures. I have been using GoHunt digital maps on desktop and mobile for quite some time now. I have used these maps for years for my in-depth e-scouting tactics and my methods of using offline maps during the hunt. Well, now I'm happy to report GoHunt maps now covers all 50 states. There's two ways to get the GoHunt map. You can sign up for a GoHunt Insider membership and get the benefits of all the draw odds, harvest statistics, unit breakdowns, strategy articles, as well as access to the 50 state maps, plus savings on gear for being an Insider member. Like right now, they're doing double points. For an Insider membership, sign up now at GoHunt.com, use the JScott promo code, and get a $50 GoHunt Gear Shop gift card just for signing up. You can also just sign up for a GoHunt Explorer membership, and that gives you access to 50 states for 50 bucks. Use the JScott promo code. Guys, also, don't forget to get a 10% discount on gear at the Go Hunt Gear Shop by using the J. Scott promo code. You can also reach out to my friend Cody Nelson of 20 plus years, either by phone or by text, 602-399-3699. Make sure you tell him I sent you. I want to thank GoHunt.com for their loyal sponsorship of my podcast. We're over 815 episodes in, and they've been with me for, since the beginning. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting for their sponsorship of this podcast. They provide the gear that I use on all of my hunting adventures. You can go to the Kuyu website directly, kuiu.com, order directly. They're a direct-to-consumer company. Uh, they make the best gear in the in the hunting industry, and I've been a loyal supporter of theirs for years. Also, phonescope.com. Go to phonescope.com. Use the J. Scott or jscott22 promo code and you're going to get a 10% discount at Phonescope. Guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for, for supporting me. If you have any questions or you'd like to send me a comment, the best way to do that is on my Instagram account, at jscottoutdoors. Again, let's get right to this episode and thanks for your support. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. This is your guest host, Cliff Gray. Colorado rifle deer and elk seasons are coming up here, so I wanted to continue with some episodes to get some Colorado guys on that could help all the folks that are coming out west to Colorado to uh, take advantage of those rifle seasons and hunting opportunities. Like the last episode I did, in this episode we touch on current conditions in Colorado, what folks should expect for first rifle season and second and third um, I'm also going to pick uh, Ryan, this guest's brain, on last-minute things folks can do to prepare and some tips and tricks that anyone can implement on these hunts coming up. Today I have Ryan McSparron, the new owner of Budge's Wilderness Lodge in the Flat Tops Wilderness area. Ryan, I know from, from my experience with him, has extensive guiding, guiding uh, time in over-the-counter elk units. And in my opinion, Budge's, Budge's location and the experience that one can offer out there is truly one of a kind. We'll get into it more, but I have a little, little history uh, myself there. But uh, before I get carried away with my thoughts, I'm going to let Ryan do a brief introduction of himself and his current operation that he uh, just purchased this last season. Right, Ryan? Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Cliff. Yeah, my uh, wife and I uh, just purchased uh, Budge's Wilderness Lodge this past May. And uh, we're excited to be the new owners of an almost 100-year-old lodge and uh, kind of hopefully carry it through this next chapter. And um, yeah, I've been uh, guiding there for several years. Um, I know the place pretty well, and I've been guiding in the flat tops for almost 14 years. But uh, yeah, look forward to this next chapter for budges. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's a really cool, cool place. I don't think... I always thought like just to give everybody the listeners my my thoughts on budges is I always thought it was like an underutilized super unique asset and I don't just mean in the flat tops I really don't think there's that many places that offer that just cool experience you know this in in the summer in the fall uh that budges can offer I mean it's really you're truly in the wilderness but you also have a pretty pretty cool facility uh, I think the last time I was in there, um, Ryan was, it was probably, well, the previous owner to you, when did he buy it? Uh, so he bought it in 2016. Yeah. So it was actually before that. I mean, time just flies by, man, but it was before that and it, it wasn't in the best of shape, but it was still just like an incredible location. It's beautiful right on the river there. 
And uh, at that time, for sure, it was it was being underutilized, probably for a bunch of bunch of different reasons. But from what I hear over the last few years, uh, the previous owner to you, and I'm sure you're you're continuing that uh, that momentum is you, you guys have really improved it. Um, and uh, I wanted to specifically point that out, Ryan, because when I was I was googling budgets, there's still like these there's like a couple little lingering like kind of poor reviews on it, and I want everybody to know that that was from back in the day um all i've heard is positive stuff lately yeah you hit it spot on it 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 was really underutilized for a lot of years it had kind of uh, gone downhill and um yeah and the, i remember when the previous owner purchased it in 2016 i remember at that time thinking oh man that place has so much potential um it's literally at the wilderness boundary where the road dead ends into the wilderness, uh, you know, a hundred yards from the upper white river. Um, so in terms of just hunting and fly fishing and, and um, all the adventures that you can base out of there, um, it's just a, like you said, really unique location. And, um, and then, so when uh, um, my friend Nelson, who's been managing it here for the previous owner for the past six years mentioned to me that uh, um, it was, you know, uh, potentially being sold again. Uh, I immediately started talking to my wife about it. We started kicking the idea around and, um, yeah, I can't believe we're finally here, but we're, uh, we're super excited about it. Yeah. Cool. It, it's uh, cool that you guys took the, uh, took the jump, man. So, uh, we'll just jump in here. Uh, like the last episode I did, I did, uh, with some, your flat tops and neighbors, uh, my old business. I, uh, we talked briefly about September, man. So let me know, uh, how it went. I'm kind of curious, Ryan, are you guys, are you, are you guys still, did you fish a lot during September still and archery elk hunt? And then are you guys doing any bear hunting or other stuff? Kind of fill me in on how it went and your thoughts. I, from what I've heard, I haven't been in Colorado in the last couple of months, but it was kind of a little bit of a unique, uh, season, at least when I was chatting with the other guys. Yeah, you know, September was beautiful and we did run guided fishing trips really all the way through September. In fact, the fishing is still just lights out up there right now, even in early October. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we were doing some fishing as well as archery and muzzleloader elk hunting. Um, you know, we uh, do not do any standalone bear hunting. Uh, we did have a couple of folks kill bears, um, but uh, those are mostly opportunistic uh, kind of things. You know, folks will bring a bear tag along if they're if they're elk hunting. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it's been a, a warm, sunny, kind of beautiful September in terms of weather and everything else. Right. And it sounds like just a little more moisture than typical, huh? At least a across the region. Sounds yeah. Like. Yes. It, we had a, a really wet summer, uh, lots of rain. Um, the, the grass in a lot of places is waist high and, uh, yeah. And that's, uh, it's, it's made for a beautiful fall. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And, uh, and I'm actually going to and this is going to be more in the context of like do it yourself kind of over the counter archery elk hunting, uh, and your thoughts on it. Um, you know, not to, not to speak for you, Ryan, but I think you've actually done a fair amount of it, right? You've guided archery hunters in the flat tops and you've done some personal archery hunting in the past. Yes. Yeah. I've done a, done a lot of, uh, hunting in over the counter units in the flat tops, both guiding and, uh, and personally too. Yeah. I think from our previous discussions, like I know, I know some of the areas that you've hunted and we've over the years, we've, we've been exposed to, to some of the same, same elk. Um, and did, did you catch the episode I did with the guys yesterday? You know, I, I was able to uh, uh, turn it on for a few minutes after it was released yesterday and uh, listen to a bit of it. Yeah. So one of the questions I asked uh, Evan, and I want to get, get your insights on it is I never, this is like one of the biggest enigma of over-the-counter elk. And I think a lot of people coming out West for archery season run into this is they see a lot of the media around archery elk hunting, um, you know, that that's out there and they're expecting way more vocalizations than they, mm. than they uh, experience. And what's weird is I, so in my life, I've been in areas where they were more vocal in general then less so. And then all my time in the flat tops, it seemed really spotty. That that was kind of my experience with it. Um, I have my own kind of theory on on why that is. I actually noticed it in on Idaho an Idaho hunt I went on just a couple weeks ago that had a really similar type of population dynamic. Same deal, just just 
just less vocalizations than one might expect. Do you have any theories on that, Ryan? And then the other thing is, um, I mean, have you had a totally different experience? That's that's possible also. So just give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, my experience has been um, in, in terms of opportunities at, at um, having encounters with vocal elk and calling in bulls, uh, you've got to work hard for them in these over-the-counter units. And, and particularly here in the flat tops, it's, um, you know, if, if you're out here on a five-day, six-day, week-long hunt, um, you're going to work your tail off for a couple or, or maybe a handful of opportunities at elk like that. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's been my experience. And and you mentioned it being spotty. And it's, it's funny that, that that's been your experience too. You know, it seems like um, a lot of the places that we hunt uh, in these over-the-counter units you know, you'll have a bull fired up one day in one spot. Um, and then the next day it'll be totally silent. Uh, you'll get back to camp that night and talk to one of your, uh, friends who maybe was hunting in a different drainage and, and they had them, uh, fired up in a different area. Um, and, and for whatever reason that, that does seem to be pretty common, I think. Right. Right. Kind of a universal, uh, you know, experience for, for a lot of folks. And, and I think it's good for people to know that, uh, Ryan, because I don't, I, I dealt with a little a little bit in my uh, outfitting and guiding there. It helps if guys have that expectation. I mean, the elk are there and they're still rutting. I mean, those cows are still going to have calves, you know, the next year. So they are rutting, but having, uh, you know, kind of a, an expectation that you're not going to be in like a rut fest every day. I think it actually helps guys because it's, you know, it's going to change your tactics and how, mm-hmm. how you go after those type of elk. You know, if you just before we jump to another subject, I mean, do you have a couple tips for archers that, you know, now the season's over, but that are coming out next year and maybe they went out this this last September and they were they came home a little frustrated. Do you have a couple couple tips for them or thoughts that might help them in the future? Yeah, I think, you know, two of the things that I always try and keep in mind and, and to tell folks that I'm hunting with is. Uh, one, you know, be prepared to work hard, you know, like you said, expectations, I think are a big part of it. And then, and then two, just, uh, be persistent and stay positive. Um, you know, it's, there's going to be a lot of downtime on any archery elk hunt, um, you know, where you're <laughs> taking naps and, and sleeping through part of the day and just, or, 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 you know, uh, beating your way up and down ridges, trying to locate elk and doing glassing and whatever, all those things are that, that you can do to locate elk. Uh, just stay positive and be persistent and keep at it. And whether you've got five or six or seven days, um, you know, make sure that um, y- you're you're taking advantage of all the time you've got. Because um, like I said, you know, y- you keep working and you will get those opportunities and you locate elk and you'll get into a bull that is fired up and you'll get to call them in. And whether whether you get to, to kill an elk and take one home or not, um, you know, that, that's, that's what archery elk hunting is all about to me. It's, it's those close encounters and talking to elk. There's nothing like it in the world. It's, it's the most exciting thing in the world to have a, you know, 700 pound animal screaming its head off and coming at you. Um, and, and, you know, you'll go out there and, uh, and work for it. If you work your tail off for an entire week, just to get that, uh, get that encounter maybe one or two times throughout the week in an over the counter unit. And, um, but it's worth it because it's, it's an absolute blast. And, there's nothing in the world that makes me come unglued like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think just that positive attitude and persistence and uh, keep keep using all the tools in your toolkit that you've got to uh, to locate elk and keep after it. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's I think that's great advice, man. And I think I think you touched on one thing there, Ryan, that 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 is important for people to realize, like, you know, even for guys that have been doing this a ton and chasing that type of elk, if you're getting into elk and you're, you know, you're getting, you know, you're getting to play with vocalizations and, and play with bulls, you have to view that as like partial to, you know, mostly success in these type of areas. Cause to me, it's like, once you start getting where you can do that, like every time you come out West, you go into an over the counter unit, every time, if you know, like every couple days or, or, you know, every other day I'm going to get an elk, you'll eventually kill one with a bow. Um, but like that's the hard part, <laughs> you know, trying to right. be consistently getting, you know, just getting in where you're, where you're figuring them out. So cool. Um, that's, uh, that's all good, uh, good advice. Do you have any, uh, I'm always curious. I always ask, and it's a basic question and I know the listeners are going to 
going to ask, do you have a, like a go-to calling strategy that, that you use with the, these type of elk? Yeah, particularly with uh, elk and over-the-counter units. Um, you know, I, I, I guess uh, to put it short and sweet is, is my strategy is just to get as close as, as absolutely as possible uh, before I start talking to them. And, you know, I'll, I'll use whatever methods I can to locate a bull, um, whether that's um, you know, doing some bugling early in the morning just to try and get one to sound off or glassing or, or whatever else it is. But once I, once I locate a bull or at least have a good idea of where a bull is, um, my next step is, is to shut up and to get as close as I can to that bull before I start talking again. Um, you know, I think, uh, a lot of times in order to get these bulls really fired up or pissed off, um, you know, you gotta be right there in their bedroom and, uh, and really, uh, yeah, pre present a threat to them, make them, make them think that there's, there's another bull right there. And, uh, you know, if you, if you start bugling at them and walking your way into them, um, I feel like a lot of times when that happens, what they're going to do is they'll, they'll bugle back in a lot of scenarios. Um, but they're just going to uh, keep moving further and further away and you keep bugling, they'll keep bugling back. And, uh, you know, instead of playing that game, um, I just like to get right up there, you know, inside a hundred, inside 50 yards, if I can, if I know right where they are, um, before I say anything and, uh, and really catch them off guard. And I think a lot of times that can, that can really trigger a bull, um, uh, and piss him off and make him want to come take a look. Yeah. It, so it's, it's interesting. You mentioned that type of tactic. Cause I would say, I mean, almost universally among the guys that I know are consistent archery, uh, hunters, you know, in the, you know, in that, you know, like that, that Eagle Garfield Pitkin County type of area, like locals who are just, you know, doesn't matter what the status of the elk herd is like, they're still killing elk or close to it every year, you know, um, with archery equipment, they almost all have that same mindset. Um, and I don't, I, it's not like, I, I don't want to tell the listeners like that's, that's the only way to do it. But in that area, man, like that, it's pretty consistent amongst guys that are that get it figured out that that is what they do and I, and I, I think you hit on a lot of the reasoning of why I I tend to think and tell me your opinion on it Ryan I tend to I tend to think one of the problems if you're calling from a long distance and you start moving around once like a bull starts to know where you're at is I think they see you or they or they see a lack of what they're looking for right yep I think that has a lot to do with it. They want to see another elk um, when they hear one. And uh, yeah, it's interesting that, uh, that you found that to be common, you know, in, in these hunting in these type of areas. And I've just, I've seen it so many times where, you know, folks want to bugle at them because it's fun, you know, to hear a bull bugle back at you. That's, that is it's oh, just yeah. so stinking exciting. And there's such a temptation just to scream back at him as you work your way in and hear him scream back. And um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's easier said than done, but just to be able to um, put that bugle tube away and, uh, and get as close as you possibly can. And, and sometimes, you know, you might not even have to get those calls back out again. You may be able to stock in there for a shot without, without saying anything. And, and maybe that could be the ideal scenario. Right. Yeah. And you're, and you're open to that. And, yeah, and absolutely. Yep. I think uh, sometimes not saying anything can be the best strategy for sure. Yeah, I think that I I uh, um, I hear you, and I I have the same feeling, which I I feel mixed on, man, because like calling them in is part of it, but there is an element over the years that what I've seen with those type of elk, if you can, yeah, use your calls to locate them or just glass them up, um, and use the fact that you know they're acting a little bit, you know, their guards a little bit down, at least their guard is. The, if they got cows, the cows guard may not be, but you can use that to your advantage and just spot and stock kill them. Or, you know, the other thing is they're pat they're that you kind of know, you know, they, they get a little pattern that time of year so you can intercept them or whatever. But um right. it, it's just kind of a bummer because you wanna you wanna say no, the effective way is to call them in. At least I want to, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but sometimes I, I think you're right, man. I think I think you got to keep that in your toolbox that hey, let's just let's just sneak in there and, and kill one without letting them even know we're, we're here, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, cool, man. So we'll, we'll jump by, uh, we'll jump, uh, through, through archery and we'll, we'll start talking about 
rifle seasons. Um, let, let me, what are the current conditions, man? Like I, it's funny cause your introduction of budges and, and you're like, Oh, it's at the end of the road. Um, or, you know, it's on the road next to the wilderness. Yeah. Technically it's, it's, what is it just, it's a little, it's like technically outside of the wilderness, but I think like the way I view it and the way I think the, the way to depict it in, you know, my mind is that it, it's really in the wilderness and that road is, uh, um, it's a good road getting in there. Everybody can get in there to your, to your business and stuff, but it's a hall. I mean, it's remote, you know, it's, as, it's as remote as anywhere in, uh, in, in, in Colorado. And, uh, I've been in there in first rifle and, and conditions can be, can be super variable. So give us an update on what it looks like now and, and, uh, what people who are going out there, either if they're hunting the flat tops or other regions in Colorado, what they should expect. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we are at the end of a long, long Forest Service road, um, 40 miles from the nearest pavement. And uh, the road actually kind of cherry stems into the wilderness a bit. So we are surrounded by three sides on des by designated wilderness. And um, yeah, it, you know, it's, uh, it's been an interesting year. Um, as much rain as I can ever remember seeing in the flat tops, there's water everywhere. Uh, like I said, the, uh, the grass is, is as tall as I can remember seeing it. Um, and, and I think because of that, one of the challenges this year is going to be, there's really nothing concentrating the elk. Um, I mean, there is food and there is water available everywhere you look. Um, and, uh, from, from, you know, the, the tops of the mountains down to the river, um, you know, there's, there's great habitat everywhere. And I think, you know, the, some of the challenge is going to be uh, just locating elk because they're still, you know, going to be in, in small groups. Um, they're going to be spread out and, uh, and, you know, and first rifle anyway, I think is, it's a tough time of year, especially with the season dates, the way they are now this year, first rifle season opens on October 15th. I mean, we're smack dab in the middle of October, uh, which means this is a post rut hunt. And, and a lot of those bulls are going to be, you know, they're, they're done with the rut, you know, they've done their work. They're going to be off on their own and they're in recovery mode. Um, and they're going to be doing what they can just to hang tight and not, <laughs> you know, move as, as little as possible, go somewhere where they feel safe, where they've got food and water and cover and, uh, and they're recovering, trying to put weight back on. Um, and, uh, and so I think, you know, for the most part, um, yeah, you so you're going to be talking about hunting loner bulls this time of year, and uh, and especially when the elk are spread out anyway, that means it's going to take some work to find them. Yeah, I think that's and I, it, you know I I in my mind, Ryan, I always associated with like this this massive amount of incredible habitat per capita of elk. You know, in the flat tops, it's in my view, it's the highest in anywhere I've ever been in mm -hmm. in. In the 48 states, I think that, yeah, the flat tops is known as having a huge elk herd, but habitat per capita of elk, it's, it's, it's one of the highest, you know what I mean? Like there is good elk habitat almost everywhere on, yep. you know, on that, on that topography. Um, I think it goes for some of the other areas in Colorado too. I think, you know, the San Juans, if they don't have snow, it's the same thing. Your, your elk are super dispersed. I think it's a pretty, a pretty big, uh, challenge for folks when, when you don't have, I mean, I, over the years we had some awesome first rifles, but generally they were because we had an October 5th, three feet of snow on the top type of deal. You right. know what I mean? Um, and so you just had that, that concentration. Um, so yeah, everybody, it, and it doesn't look like between now and when the season starts, you guys are going to have good weather, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right now, the way it's looking is uh, the forecast looks like it's going to stay, um, you know, pretty warm and sunny and yeah, nothing, nothing really that's going to, you know, concentrate these elk, push them off the tops onto those South facing Canyon walls and stuff like that. You know, they're going to, um, I think stay, stay spread out. And, um, which, which makes, I think, you know, first rifle season, the, the way the season dates in Colorado are now, I, I think it's the, you know, it, it, is quite possibly the, the toughest hunting season of the year. Um, and, and it, which is funny because it's also, I think the most popular, I mean, we receive more inquiries about first rifle. Um, we see more public hunting pressure during first rifle than maybe any other season now. And I think a lot of that has to do with, 
um you know second rifle season this year doesn't open till you know it's darn near halloween it's it's the end of october and um i i think that pushes a lot of people back toward first rifle when maybe the weather's a little nicer and they don't have to deal with access issues and snow on the roads and all that uh which i understand um but uh but yeah it's 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 a tough hunt that's for sure yeah i i think you nailed it man and it's funny you observe that same thing because and we'll go over that uh, right now, just so the listeners uh, understand. So, and let me know if, because you're in the kind of the bordering units to uh, where I was for many years. So there might be some little differences, Ryan. So just, just chime in. But essentially what you have there is you have two, you have, uh, I had an archery season that was over the counter. Um, your archery season is draw, correct? That's right. Yep. We do, op- we do operate a little bit in, uh, in an over the counter unit, but almost all of our archery hunting is done in a draw unit. Yeah. And, and we'll touch, we, before we're done with this draw discussion, we'll, we'll, we'll touch back on that. But just so the listeners understand first rifle is a draw also, but very high quota, right? Like it's, it's essentially over the counter in the sense that you can get a tag if you want one. Is that correct? It might as well be. Yeah. You, uh, there were, I, I want to say close to 2000 tags left over after the primary draw this year. Yeah. And that's, that seems like that's been the case for, for a decade now or so. Right. Um, and so they, uh, there's that for first rifle and then second and third rifle are over the counter. And then fourth, fourth season is a uh, draw. And then, um, you have basically overlapping draw deer season, second, third, and fourth. Um, and so you, your units have that same structure, correct? Yep, that's correct. And you point out something that I observed too, and I think it's important for people to realize this is that I think when they look at those those uh, seasons and that structure, they see over the counter second, over the counter third, and they think that first rifle is actually going to have less hunting pressure because it's not technically over the counter. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think a lot of folks assume that because it's technically a, a draw uh, hunt that uh, that it's it's going to see fewer people. And, um, you know, at, at one time in the past, that may have been the case. I think, you know, historically, when second rifle season dates fell a little bit earlier, um, th- that maybe did tend to be a little more popular. But at least the way the season dates have, have fallen here the last few years uh, that first rifle season, we see, I'd, I'd say we, you know, there's a public trailhead uh, just down the road from us. And um, I, I'd say the last few years, there have been double the amount of vehicles at the trailhead during first rifle as opposed to second rifle season. Yeah, it, it's interesting, man. We we had the same, I think pretty much the same, the same deal. You know, we, we had a little more exposure to to deer hunting country, I think. And we, we can touch <laughs> on that too, Ryan. So, so I feel like the other seasons, like that was, you, you had a, you had a little bit of bump up just from public pressure that were, they were really primarily deer hunter, deer hunters, but like, and we didn't touch on this, but your operation is really outside of the lodge hunts you're doing. You're doing a lot of horseback stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we've got, um, the, the the main lodge uh, which is uh, has vehicle access to and we'll, we run a lot of hunts just out of the main lodge there of course but then uh, we have uh, a dozen permitted uh, drop campsites throughout the wilderness area as well and and of course we don't use all all of those on any given year we'll typically have uh, four or five of those camps set at any given time and we kind of rotate each year which ones we use um, in order to distribute the pressure a little bit and uh, and utilize the area. But, um, but yeah, um, uh, yeah, getting out there and, and doing a lot of, uh, a lot of hunting in, in areas that are accessed by horseback. Yeah. And the reason I, the reason I, I hit that, not, I wasn't trying to get totally off track, but what I noticed during first rifle and, and tell me if, if you kind of noticed the same thing is that the stuff that was remote, I mean, you're, you're a lot of where you're taking guys and you're hunting, um, the public can hunt it, but the guys that are competing with you, particularly during first rifle, those guys are working pretty hard. You know, they're, they're in my view, I, I would still like archery season and then into first rifle, I would see public hunting pressure that was like always on the border of like capability to get an elk out. Like they were pushing it. You know what I mean? Like they were getting in far 
and I would see that that uh, um, pressure in first rifle for sure. That type of pressure is higher than any other time. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, absolutely. And you know, I think maybe a lot of that has to do with the weather. Um, you know, in first rifle season, especially you know, you look at the forecast this year. It's it's going to be nice, and and folks are willing to strap on a backpack and and get further into the wilderness area. Whereas you get into those second and third rifle season hunts and you can expect snow on the ground. And I I think people kind of tend to err toward, you know, staying at at their base camps with a wall tent and a wood stove and all that comfy gear. Yeah, no, I, I mean, let's be honest, Ryan. Like if you're, if you're backpack hunting in that country into third or fourth season, you're a stud um and you and you're a masochist too absolutely absolutely (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty much what it comes down to and i actually know a couple guys um there's a guy that 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 used to guide for me cody that does it and i'm like man you're a stud man and he and he pulls it off but in general i mean i don't know what your thoughts are but i I don't know that that's not the hunt you want to start out on if you're a backpack hunter Right. Yeah. It's, it's definitely not, not a, uh, you know, a, a hunt you'd, you'd want to get your feet wet on. That's for sure. That, that said though, I mean, I, I love hunting third and even fourth rifle season and, uh, and I've done some backpack hunts, fourth rifle season, and, uh, there's no doubt it can be extremely effective. Um, but, uh, but you're going to suffer a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool that you've done them, man. We're going to, we're going to circle back to that. Cause I want to, I want to hear about it. I, so I've done a little bit of it. And then of course, like I ran camps later than I think what you guys do at budgets. So I, we, we probably have some funny stories we can, we can talk about in that regard, but uh, just to finish up the draw deal, Ryan, cause I know that you guys are in unique um, or not unique, but different than I was in the sense that your archery units are draw, but they're still not that hard to draw. And, uh, so give, give, uh, give the listeners a rundown on that. I think it applies to your units and it applies to now a lot of units in uh, Colorado, just about, you know, how you can maybe bump up, you know, the quality of the unit you're hunting, um, just by just a couple points, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good point. So, uh, at, at Budges, we operate uh, primarily in a unit that's um, it's a draw for archery and muzzleloader. Um, so while a lot of our neighboring units in the flat tops are over the counter, uh, we're in a draw unit. And, um, you know, for a non-resident, it, it takes about two preference points uh, to draw the archery tag um, in, in our unit. And uh, so even though you're talking about a draw hunt, you're not talking about a really long wait, and especially considering the fact that a lot of folks are planning elk hunts now two years in advance anyway. Um, you know, it's, it's something I like to encourage folks to think about, you know, yeah, you can buy an over-the-counter archery tag and go hunting this year. Um, but in the meantime, uh, there's nothing stopping you from applying for a preference point. And, uh, and with a couple of preference points, just the, you know, the, the difference in quality from an over-the-counter unit to just, you know, we're not talking about a, a premier you know, Colorado elk unit that's going to take you a decade or more to draw, uh, just a couple of points. The difference in quality is, is, um, pretty apparent. And, um, you know, we, we don't see a ton of archery pressure here, unlike a lot of those over the counter units. And it, it makes for a really fun elk hunt. And I think because of that, you know, the elk do tend to be a little bit more vocal. Um, and, uh, and we've had really good success on our archery and our muzzleloader hunts. And, those muzzleloader hunts, you know, for a non-resident, we're talking about maybe four to five preference points to draw that hunt. Um, and, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a great time. Yeah. And it's a beautiful time to be in that country. Like kind of piggybacking on what you're saying about why first rifle is so, um, it, you know, tends to be a little more competitive and there's more pressure. And that's that it's easier to drive places in Colorado. It's easier to get over the passes. The mountains are freaking beautiful. Yeah. Weather can be can be a little volatile, but nothing compared to the, you know, late October or something like that. So, um, it's a great, it's, I, I think it's a great opportunity and you know, what you touch on, Ryan, I think it applies to so many, basically every, you know, all the primary species in Colorado, you know, deer and elk. Um, there's no reason to me why guys should not get just a couple points the the that like the, the i call it like the value play in hunting in colorado is 
one or two points, burn them every one or two years. Like when you have, like that's that's the value play in my mind. Um, you know, I I know that you've you've hunted. Uh, well, I, I believe you have just kind of fallen following your social media and stuff. You've hunted some. Have you hunted any like high point elk units or high point deer hunt deer deer units recently? No, you know, that's, it's funny you say that. And that's, that's exactly my strategy just personally for my own hunts. Uh, you know, I like to collect a point or two and burn them every couple of years. Um, you know, you don't need uh, a decade's worth of preference points to kill a good mule deer buck in Colorado. Um, and, and the same goes for elk, you know, just a, a couple of points, uh, can make a huge difference in terms of the units and the doors that that opens up for you. Yeah, it's wild, man. And the thing is, is like a couple points, the incremental, you know, the incremental quality of hunt is, is, is fairly, you know, there's a fairly high relative difference. Now, if you go from four points to 12 points, there's almost no difference in my right. experience. Um, it's wild, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yep. Yep. There, there, there's absolutely a, a point of diminishing returns there where, you know, you can keep saving points, but you know, you're going to have, I think a far better experience if, if you go on three hunts instead of, you know, saving up points for 12 years and going on one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and yeah, so like if guys want to hunt, you know, do a guided archery hunt or drop camp archery hunt in like a unit like yours, you know, they can just get with you a couple years ahead of time. They're getting, nowadays, that's kind of how the booking world is and how planning is anyways. So um, it's going to be a couple, couple years out anyway, so they can, yeah, you can guide guys through that process or they, they can figure it out, but you, they, they got to get a couple points to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it takes a couple points to draw the archery tag, but it's, it's absolutely worth it. And um, yeah, folks are comfortable with the application process. If they've done it before, you know, just, they can get with us and uh, uh, we can uh, help them lock in that spot. And for folks who are intimidated by that uh, application and draw process here in Colorado, uh, we actually have a preference point program where uh, we will uh, actually handle the whole thing for them. Nice. So you'll, you'll, you'll do that. Dude, you're going you're going all over the place, man. You're going to be too busy. <laughs> oh, uh, we, we got, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, I, you know, it's, it's a cool thing. Um, you know, I think when I, when I first started uh, looking at budges and just where, where the, um, the outfit operated, I, you know, at first glance, I thought, Oh, it's kind of a bummer that it's not an over the counter elk unit. How do you, you know, it's, uh, just makes it tough to sell elk hunts, but you know, the, the, the more I've, um, uh, spent time in, in the unit and just seeing what two preference points does in terms of the difference that makes, uh, man, I'm, I'm all about it. Yeah. And it, it's a, I totally agree with you in, in, you know, people would, people would always say that to me over the years, Ryan, they'd be like, well, you, you're, you're always going to be a promote proponent of over the counter elk tags. And I was always like, no, not really. You know what I mean? Because I did a lot of other uh, guiding and outfitting in species that were really high points to draw. Um, and I always was busy. Like it wasn't like it wasn't like I needed to, to book more sheep hunts or something. You know what I mean? And like yeah. I wanted it to be like there'd be more sheep tag. So I think that's kind of a little misnomer with like the guiding and outfitting community. I think you I think people if they pulled all the outfitters out there, um, you know, particularly we, and we can get into that a little bit more, but, but guys that have, you know, fairly large businesses where like, I mean, I don't know, you know, we haven't talked about, you know, what you're doing personally and stuff, but like a business like budges, you know, or, or, you know, akin to the business I had, like, those are not hobby businesses. This is like, this is really your full-time job, if not more, you know, yeah. I, I understand you might be doing other things, but in terms of the concentration that goes into a business like that, you know, it's your, it's a, it's a lifestyle plus type of type of thing. You know what I mean? And, and most, uh, most outfitters that are in that world, I think they, they're trying to think long-term about their areas and, and just, you know, taking down the variability of their hunts. I think a lot of them would be open to a lot of that country going in, you know, going to a couple points or, or whatever. What, what are your thoughts on it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, uh, you know, 
as a business, would it make it easier to, you know, for us to sell an elk hunt if, if we had over the counter uh, tags in our, in our unit? Sure. It, you know, it'd make things less complicated, but, um, but I will take being in a draw unit any day of the week, just the, the difference in quality. Um, it, it, it makes, it makes it fun to guide. It makes it fun to hunt. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, we've, we've got to plan two years in advance and, you know, we've got to, you know, um, prepare, you know, our, our hunters for that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll take that all day long. It's, um, it's, it's a fun place to be. And, uh, and, um, yeah, and, and actually funny, you mentioned, you know, uh, jobs, my, my day job before, before I took on this project was doing, uh, marketing for, uh, guides and outfitters. I do, uh, digital marketing and, um, I've worked for a lot of outfitters in Wyoming and, you know, there, it takes three plus years to draw an elk tag. Um, and, uh, it's, but it's something that's, that's absolutely overcomable. You know, you, you work with your clients on it and you plan a few years in advance and, um, and, and for that difference in quality versus an over-the-counter unit. Um, yeah, I, I think in, in my mind, I, I wouldn't go back to, to operating in, in an over-the-counter unit if I had that option. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you, and you know, um, I guess one thing, uh, for the listeners to understand is it, it is like the over-the-counter opportunity for people, particularly people who are just getting into the 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 sport or or whatever you want to call this this lifestyle, I think is a better better uh, term for it. But the over over-the-counter stuff gives people a great opportunity to just be able to go buy a tag and and go yeah. right. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm totally with you that it's that it just a couple points or whatever. That's easy, man. Time flies by. You'll have a. I don't even. I mean, I have like, it's crazy because all the years of guiding Ryan, I've just been accumulating points. Like I open up my little spreadsheet. I keep track of points and I'm like, holy shit, yeah. time flies. You know? <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, uh, I hear you. And um, so, yeah, so we kind of, sorry to get off on a caveat, but I think that would be, that was really useful for, for guys to understand uh, that. And that goes for, you know, that, that, like you were talking about mule deer in Colorado. I feel the same way. Like one or two points guys go hunting and start oh, learning yeah. an area, learn a unit. Are you guys doing any deer hunting at a budget? Like your country's a little higher than, than what I used to guide in. Yeah. You know, what I usually tell folks is that the, the habitat where, where we're doing most of our hunting is it's 90% elk habitat, 10% mule deer habitat. And that's not to say, you know, we don't have plenty of deer around there's there's some certainly some good bucks and um it's it's the kind of thing though where i i look at mule deer hunting in our area more as a as an opportunistic kind of thing if folks are coming on an elk hunt and they have a deer tag in their pocket as well great um you know there's a there's a good chance we'll we'll kill a nice buck but um i'm i'm not selling for i wouldn't sell somebody just on a standalone deer hunt where we are i think there's better places they can go if, if they want to go just, just to do a dedicated mule deer hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you know, what might be, are they still doing that high country hunt, that wilderness hunt up there? Yeah, they are. Yeah. So in the flat tops wilderness area, um, there's an early, uh, rifle deer tag at, during the, the beginning of September. Uh, it's a very limited tag and, uh, I, you know, honestly, I, um, I haven't looked at it in uh, recently, but I want to say it takes somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 10 points for a non-resident to draw that mule deer tag. Uh, but, um, but if, you know, for folks who do have, uh, some, some deer points to burn, that can be a really good option too. hunting, hunting those bucks up high above timberline, uh, in early September with a rifle could be a ton of fun. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting, man. So that, that tag, I think it draws like pretty, pretty high points. I've guided it a few times and, and had great success. And then I've also had really hard hunts. Um, it's, uh, but that country, man, I, and I don't know. So just a little history, it's kind of funny. Uh, me and Ryan were talking about before we got on here, our life, our, our lives are, are, it, it kind of reminds me of like the helix of like a DNA strand, like Ryan's on one side and I'm on the other side and we're like spinning around like the same people, the same businesses and everything else, but we haven't interacted a whole lot. But anyways, <laughs> um, the, uh, the original, um, outfitter that you worked for more on kind of the, it's to the, uh, East of you in terms of the flat tops back over in that country, um, you know, that, that country had more of a mix of deer, you know, deer and elk, uh, stuff. Right. So 
you know, you know, kind of what's what's on that in terms of deer. But I, I used to always talk to uh, Larry, the guy that, that you originally uh, worked for. And those deer up there, like, it's amazing to me, the mule deer and the flat tops. They, ha- they have very good genetics, but at certain times of the year, particularly once they rip their velvet off, like, where do they go? Oh, you know man. what I mean? Do, do you have a do you have a theory, Ryan? You know, um, yeah. So uh, when I'm I not, first don't started... don't tell them like specific coordinates. I'm saying. Oh yeah, like... no, no, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. When when I first started guiding in the flat tops, yeah, I was I was working for an outfitter just over the mountain from us, just to the east. And it's it's funny that just the difference um, uh, from from that area, which is as the crow flies, not very far to where we are at Budges. Um, you know, there, there was some very good mule deer hunting over there, but, but even still, um, you know, I, I always told folks that, you know, it's, it's a low density deer area. Um, and, and there are some, some just slammer bucks for sure. Um, you know, they've got those, you know, Eagle Garfield County genetics. I mean, these are, you know, big mountain mule deer. Um, but, but you could go five days and not see one. Um, and, 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 and just, I, I always liked giving folks that expectation before they came hunting with us that, um, you know, there's, there is a potential to kill a really nice mule deer. And there's also a chance that, uh, you know, we, we might not see a deer all week and, uh, yeah, they're, they're just a low density animal in that area for whatever reason. And, uh, and yeah, like you said, you know, there, there'd be times where, you know, you'd see them up above timberline, big, fat, and happy in the willows all summer long. And, and then as soon as they strip that velvet off, they just poof, they disappear. And um, I think a lot of them spend time in the timber. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and they're just, they're just in areas where they're not visible a lot of the time. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's, I think they just, they just get into little spots that are almost impossible to even, even, even if you're just specifically trying to glass them up in little, little timbers, slivers and that sort of thing. They're just so, there's so much like canopy where they're living essentially. It's just hard. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so they go into spots like that. And like you say, I mean, there's, there's world-class deer in, in that wilderness area and in other wilderness areas there, but people got to realize like, it's a low density deal. And it's, it's, that's a hard, that's kind of a hard message to send because particularly with like social media and that sort of thing, I mean, you will see some insanely big deer. And I think, I think people have a hard time realizing that it's not a, it's not like a, it's not a steady continuous uh, like graph, right? It's not like, Oh, like, man, if they're killing deer like that, it should be easy to go there and kill like a nice, you know, a nice 150, 160 inch four by, but that's all I want to kill. It's like, well, that might be really freaking hard, you know? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so yep, it's, 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 it's odd that way, you know? Right. Um, it can produce them, but it's like you say, very, very low density. Yeah. But, and I- uh, go ahead. Oh, I, I think, you know, a lot of it just comes down to expectations and, and, and what folks are interested in doing. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely places where you can go and hunt somewhere with a, with a much higher deer density, you know, and, you know, some of the desert units or, or sagebrush units and things like that, where you can get up on a, on a glassing point and you can see deer all day long. And, um, you know, you, you, you know, maybe, maybe not kill the biggest buck in the world. And, um, you know, sometimes it, it comes down to deciding whether, you know, is that, is that the kind of mule deer hunting experience I'm after something that's a little more fast action where I'm seeing more animals or am I going, or am I willing to, to go up on the mountain and sit there and wait for a week and, and knowing that I, I, you know, I might not see that buck. Um, and, uh, yeah, just there's Colorado offers so many different experiences when it comes to mule deer hunting. And I, I love mule deer hunting. I grew up doing it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, from one area of the state to another, it, it can be totally different and in good ways. Yeah. And always, and it's always changing a little bit. You know what I mean? For, for me, Ryan, like I, I would be lying if I didn't say I enjoy mule deer hunting and guiding mule deer hunts more than elk hunts. Um, it, I don't know why that just, that just is the case. I've always been kind of in, infatuated with them, particularly big ones. They're, they're a really cool animal. I think, I think, if I was being honest, part of that is because, you know, 
there's always the chance in areas that in areas that you can get a tag pretty readily, uh, at least right now in Colorado. Yeah, we can, you know, everybody can talk about how, how things have changed. Sure. But I still believe right now there are areas in Colorado where you can kill like world-class deer on a couple points. Right. Yeah. What, what other species and opportunity uh, can, can you do that in? Um, without it really being, you know, just a, a dream. Like you can do it in elk. Um, you know, I, I have, we never killed bulls this big, but I've, I've got a pair of sheds from a bull that survived, you know, survived in the flat tops. And he's like a 370 inch bull, you know, <laughs> they, they're there. Um, but they're, they're, you know, they're, they're pretty, you don't see a lot of them. Like they're, you know what I mean? Right. Like those deer, you always have the chance in a lot of different areas in, in Colorado if you if you work at it. So I always was a, addicted to them in that regard. But it sounds like you've hunted them a while. What what are your thoughts on has the deer hunting changed in your mind? Um, do you have any any thoughts on that or, or where it's going? Yeah, you know, um I I do enjoy mule deer hunting. I'm the, I'm the same way, Cliff. I, um, there's just something about big mule deer. That's a lot of fun. I, I don't know what it is. I, I really enjoy hunting them. I think maybe some of it's the, the visual aspect. I like, I like glassing and, and I like looking at just watching animals. And, and there's usually a lot of that in mule deer hunting and, um, they're just, and they're fun animals to watch. They're cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I think you, you made a good point. There's, uh, there's a, a opportunities to kill mule deer in Colorado in a lot of different places and, and without a lot of preference points. Um, you know, a good buck can come out of any unit in Colorado. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you might have to, to hunt for a few years or, or give it a few tries. Um, but, uh, but they're there and, um, yeah, it's, that's one of the fun things about it, you know, save up, a a point or two or three and go hunting and, uh, and keep doing that. And, you know, eventually you'll find a good one. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, you know, I don't feel like I, I have too much insight into how mule deer hunting is, has changed over the years, uh, whether, you know, the good old days are here or before, you know, I'm not sure, but, uh, um, but I still enjoy mule deer hunting. In fact, I've got a, a third rifle tag that I'm looking forward to using this year. Uh, once we close up shop at budges. Oh, good deal, man. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm with you, man. Like I, I think it's sometimes it's hard to kind of, kind of sift through the reality of what's going on. You know, my, my personal perception, I will, I will throw it out there is that is that I think it's still the good old days of mule deer hunting. Um, you know, my personal opinion on some of the management and stuff is, is maybe those good old days are short lived, but I think right now there's a lot of positive things about it. So so I'll leave it at that, man. I think, I think people, uh, should, uh, should enjoy that. And the other thing is like what you're talking about where, where you can go multiple times, you can get good at it, you know, right. You can get good at it and you can get where, where you figure out, um, you know, you figure out how these deer are moving around and stuff and, a, and the guy can get good at it and have, have a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm very positive on it, uh, for the time being, I think it's a great opportunity for folks. Yep. Um, Man, before uh, we covered a bunch, but before uh, I've jumped topics all over the place, man, on rifle elk, because I know that's what a lot of the listeners are, are going to are coming out for. You talked about how these bulls are, are you know, it's post rut um, and uh, they're starting to go off into their what I call kind of bull country. Uh, in, and I'm, I'm sure you probably exposed to that over there in in um, in, but in Budge's areas area, too. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts on just last, you know, last minute advice for guys, you know, what is, where, where are you going to look for bulls during first, second, third rifle, um, and any other, you know, just like little tips that might help guys, Ryan? Yeah. You know, um, uh, I, I would come into this hunt, you know, just with the expectation that it, it's going to be a post red hunt. Um, and there, you know, there are times that, First rifle season, especially, we'll still see some bulls with the cows. Typically, in my experience anyway, they tend to be uh, some of the smaller satellite bulls uh, still hanging around and, and you know, seeing if they can find breeding opportunities. But for the most part, um, especially those mature bulls, they're going to be off by themselves. And, and typically, I'm, I'm looking for them in, in places where um, they've got 
all the things they need that's, you know, food, cover, water within a very short distance. Um, and where they, you know, they're, they've just spent, um, uh, you know, a month and a half just working their tails off, uh, not doing much eating at all. And they've lost a ton of weight and they're, they're looking to recover. And so, you know, looking for bulls in places where, um, they don't have to do much. Um, and, and really, I think what that means in, in terms of, you know, tips for folks who are looking to find them is, uh, really, really maximizing, um, those, those early morning and, and late evening hours, uh, you know, sitting behind the glass, locating, uh, where those, where those bulls are. And, and for me, that means, you know, I don't want to be getting to my glassing point at daylight. I want to be there 15 minutes or 30 minutes before daylight. Cause I want to sit down. I want to get out my tripod and my binoculars. I want to, you know, put on some layers and get comfortable so that the very second it's light enough to see, I'm already looking through those binoculars. Um, and I'm not wasting any time because, you know, you might have a very short window where that bull is out in an avalanche chute or, or in, in some sort of open space feeding before he turns and walks right back into the timber at daylight. Um, and, uh, you know, just being able to maximize those hours, I think is so important. Yeah, dude. I, I mean, I, I, I think that is probably the best tip that, that you could give guys, particularly, you know, when it's, it looks like your weather's going to be mild and that sort of thing. And I'm going to just piggyback on it, uh, Ryan, because I think it's key, man. Like particularly when they get these bulls get in their little localized little, little hidey hole, like you have the perfect example of, of a of an avalanche shoot, right? Like if you're not there right in the prime time, a bull could be coming out feeding on the edge of timber for days. And if there's no snow in that shoot where you can glass up tracks or something, um, which it sounds like that's not the case right now, that bull could go in and out of there and you could walk under that slide, above that slide. You could go down the other side of the slide. Like you could you know, just work your butt off and never see a track or a fresh pile of, of elk crap. You know what I mean? So you have to see them the way you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, last year um, I was guiding a second rifle hunt and uh, uh, one morning um, we noticed uh, it came across a bull track. It had snowed a few inches the night before and uh, he fed uh, out of the timber, I, I'd say 20, 30 yards you could see where he milled around a little bit and then you could see where his tracks went right back into the timber that morning. And I, I think that's, that's pretty typical of, you know, of what these elk are doing that time of year. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not spending, um, especially like, you know, with the weather, the way it's going to be this, this next week during first rifle season, you know, they're not going to be a lot on their feet a lot during those, you know, daylight hours. So yeah. And, and it's, it's easier said than done. You know, it's when it's, you know, uh, in the twenties in the morning, it's hard to get your butt out of bed in, in the pitch black. And, uh, sometimes, you know, if you're looking at, um, maybe an hour longer hike in the dark to get to wherever you're going to glass in the morning, um, it's, it's hard to motivate yourself to do that, especially day in and day out on a, you know, on a long, what can be a grueling hunt sometimes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just, just having that persistence to be able to get up and, uh, and make that hike in the dark and, and get set up and, and, be on your butt behind the glass uh, before it gets daylight is, is such a huge key. Yeah, no, I hear you, man. I think that's a great, uh, great tip, tip for guys. And it, like you said, it can be grueling, you know, and you can, you can do that a couple days and, and go through all that, that effort and pain and not see anything a couple days. And then the third day you're looking at the right spot. And then all of a sudden you've uh, you're, you find yourself with success. So it's uh it can be it can be a psychological challenge just as much as a physical one you know yeah yep yep it really is but uh i'm gonna jump to one more man so i actually today i'm actually putting together a short little video on my on my youtube channel that i was just reflecting on all of the different you know over the years you know all the different when we're talking about rifle hunting all the experience of experiences I've had when I was hunting myself or I was guiding a guy and we ended up missing deer or elk, right? Every, every guide who's guided folks has dealt with this. I shouldn't say every guide, every guide and hunter is deals with missing. Right. And I was thinking about, you know, what are the, what are the reasons that people miss? 
right? I have my own views on it, Ryan, but I want to hear what your thoughts are. Um, Cause I think, I think there's a perception out there that people miss for reasons that, uh, that maybe is like a, maybe when you're, I think when you're guiding, you have a unique experience in the sense of like when a shot opportunity arises, you don't have, you may not have the same adrenaline rush or, um, you know, other kind of psychological things going on that the hunter um, has. And so you're able to observe that situation um, from kind of a third party perspective. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you have any opinions or, or thoughts of why guys, uh, you know, the reasons why guys miss? Yeah, I think um, one, of, one of the most easily preventable is, is of course, just familiarity with the weapon. I think um, I can certainly tell stories. I think most guys can probably tell stories of folks who showed up on a hunt with a, with a weapon they weren't familiar with and uh, that, you know, bit them in the butt somewhere along the hunt. Um, and I, I've seen that happen at least a couple of times. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it was a, a borrowed rifle or, or just, you know, there, there's something that, that, um, that caused a hang up. Um, and then, you know, beyond that though, you know, assuming folks are uh, familiar and practiced with their weapons, you know, I think you mentioned, just the adrenaline piece, um, you know, that's, that's a big factor. Um, and, and a lot of times, you know, these, these opportunities, you know, don't come, um, with a lot of time to prepare, you know, um, one funny thing about elk hunting is that a, a single moment can change everything. You know, you can be having the most boring, unproductive hunt, uh, for four days. And then all of a sudden on the fifth day, you get an opportunity and you don't have any time to prepare. Um, and, and that, that opportunity happens so fast. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, it just, it, it causes folks to rush and, and that adrenaline gets going and, and they forget their routine. And, um, and the more that, that folks can do to, to have a routine and to, you know, for example, if you're using something like a bipod or, or shooting sticks or things like that, you know, I've, I've seen those things screw people up a lot too. Um, you know, know how to use those things almost just completely, um, with just pure muscle memory, just, you shouldn't even have to think about it. Um, and, uh, you know, the more you can practice with those little things and just make smooth out that process as much as possible so that, when the adrenaline is pumping and you're not thinking clearly that, that you can still go through that process and, uh, and try and get a, um, a good shot off on that animal. And, um, yeah, yeah, I guess that's, that's my experience with it anyway. Yeah. I think, I think those are great points, Ryan. And like on the shooting stick thing, bipod thing, I, I totally agree. And I think, I think one of the practical challenges for people, and this is goes for guided clients, but it goes for do it yourself guys to that, that, you know, may not have a, you know, great outdoor space to shoot all the time or whatever under like, you know, kind of Western hunting conditions or whatever you want to call it. Um, they just, they, you know, they have the equipment They're they're comfortable shooting their rifle at a flat range, that sort of thing. Um, and they, they've, you know, they've had the, the foresight to get good rests and that sort of thing. But like you're saying, they just don't go through practicing with them. And I mean, a guy can practice in his house. He's going to feel like a dork doing it, but <laughs> like practice on your TV. You know what I mean? Um, you know, like how would you sit and shoot off those sticks? How, you know, that all matters a lot, man. I mean, you, I mean, you, I know the exact situation you're talking about, right? And it's not a knock on people, but you get in situations where it's like, okay, here's the opportunity. And now it's like, everything's clacking around and you can't get the, you know, the hunt, you can't get comfortable, all those things. And it's like, oh boy, this, this is too bad that this is happening right now. Oh yeah. Oh, and I've been there too. I mean, I, yeah, I know yeah, sure. exactly how that feels. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh no, like this is, yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, just, just a little, like just practicing with those things and getting comfortable with it. I think, I think is huge. And like you say on nerves too, the same the same thing. I, you know, probably the only other thing I would say is that like, just don't shoot until you're comfortable. I, you mm -hmm. know, my, the, the question I always ask people after they shoot, and I, I don't know if you do this, Ryan is like, how did it feel? And I, and I asked them that for lots of different reasons, but a lot of times guys will be like, Oh, it just didn't feel good. And I'm thinking, Oh, why'd you shoot? Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
And so it sounds so like naive and weird and such a like basic piece of advice. But if those crosshairs are not staying on the vital area the whole time, don't pull the trigger. Don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, and that's basically exactly what, what you were saying too. But, uh, anyways, man, I think those are, they're, are valuable for folks. I, uh, I wish you guys the best, best. I think you'll have fun. Um, with, with the business just overall. I mean, what a cool business to perfect and, and grow and everything else. Uh, it's going to be going to be awesome. Do you uh, uh, let people know where they can, where they can look you up, man? Yeah. So uh, the, uh, the website is budgeslodge.com. Um, and they can also find us on Instagram at budges lodge and we'll try and be good about posting updates and, and fun stuff throughout the season. And even through the off season and, yeah, it's it's something that uh, we're we're excited about, and it's um, you know it's it's a like you said you know when we first started the conversation, it's just a unique place. Um, you know, World class fly fishing. We're on the Upper uh, White River in uh, the South Fork of the White, and um, it's it's all foot and horse traffic only. It's everything's inside the wilderness boundary, both upstream and downstream. There's a lot of river, um, and uh, just a, an awesome awesome place to, to run a summer fly fishing program. We've got wilderness camps out on the river. So folks can stay in the main lodge as well as the wilderness camps. And then, and then as we get into hunting season, starting in September, same deal, you know, we'll, uh, um, we'll do horseback trips out of the main lodge. And then we do, uh, uh the wilderness camps as well. So just a lot of, a lot of fun stuff and exciting stuff. And, uh, yeah, we're stoked about it. Cool, man. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for being on. Um, and, uh, yeah, have fun this season, man. On my end, guys, if you uh, want to follow me, you can follow me on Instagram. It's Cliff, C-L-I-F-F-G-R-Y. Yeah, I took the last letter out of my, my last name. I have no idea, but now somebody else has the, the full name. But anyways, uh, uh, or you can get on my YouTube at youtube.com backslash Cliff Gray. You can subscribe there. But anyways, uh, awesome conversation. I hope it was of uh, value to folks. Uh, thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Cliff. I appreciate it.